Welcome to the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. I'm Kara Hansel-Kehan. Today we'll discuss a new study by DeFrancisco Donahue et al. titled Reducing Thrombotic Risks in Video Gamers, Investigating the Benefits of Walking and Compression Sleeves on Blood Hemodynamics. This article was published February 8, 2024. Joining us today are Associate Editor Dr. Keith Brunt, author Dr. Joanne Donahue, and expert Dr. Saurabh Tosar. Let's get started. Keith? Thanks, Kara. The research we will discuss today is a new publication under the AJP Special Issue Call for Exercise, Physical Activity, and Cardiovascular Health. Our team at AJP are very interested in the cardiovascular complexities that can arise from sport. And here we are going to touch on a growing and very popular area, esports. Not only is there increasing growth and interest from all ages, but a burgeoning audience of invested viewers following their favorite gamers and streamers at home, or even at organized events in large auditoriums. The authors of this study raise an important question about the risk of esports, particularly for those who are seeking to go professional, coaching, or hosting major events. Using Doppler ultrasound recordings of blood flow velocity and volume, they identified a significant interaction with a drop in both measures when inactive play was interrupted by a six-minute walk. Similar findings also occurred using compression stockings, suggesting that a break in play could have a marked impact on hemodynamics and avoid risk of deep vein thrombosis, or DVT, in players. These findings were also highlighted in a recent iSpy e-article written by author Erica Roth. Thanks, Erica. In this pilot trial, these ranked eSport players with greater than 500 registered hours were asked to complete a respiratory board evaluation that registered between six to nine, or what we would consider light intensity exercise, for their walking. Also, they were given a survey after the study to ascertain the human factors and how those might influence the changes. Interestingly, a majority expressed preference for walking and two out of three felt that the change had a beneficial impact on game performance. Now, as a translational scientist who has had many discussions on the science of sport, doping detection, and performance enhancement based on basic science for clinical applications, I can say that the esports field is very nascent. So let's power up player one, Dr. Donahue, player two, Dr. Tosar. Let's get AFK and rep some buffs for P versus E that physiology can offer. So. I want to open the question to, to you, Dr. Donahue. Uh, thanks so much. It, it really grabbed me when I saw the title of the, the article. I was excited for it. And I, I was kind of interested to know, you know, first, what made you interested in esports as a study population generally? And in particular, maybe you can touch a bit on why deep vein thrombosis was a potential concern here. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I got involved with esports back in 2017, and I will be completely transparent. I didn't even know what it meant in 2017 when I was first introduced to it. Um, by name, I, I'm an exercise physiologist and nutritionist by background. My research has predominantly been with athletes or Parkinson's disease or neurological disorders. But we established an esport team on our campus. And I was told, you know, I think you should take a look at this. This is going to be the wave of the future, but we know nothing about the health of these students. 
So I really took a hard look at it. And the first thing I did was do a literature search and realized there's virtually no research out there on esports. And the first thing I did was do a study, um, a nationwide survey to all these collegiate teams. At the time in 2018, there was only about 70, they call them clubs, essentially. They're not a varsity sport, but 70 clubs across the country. Um, now there's about 180 of them. And I just wanted to find out what their daily patterns were. What, what, what do they do? How long do they sit for? And what that study showed me is that on average, they sit three to four hours a day to play. That doesn't include sitting time with other activities you know, for school. And their activity level was either very low or virtually nothing. Mm-hmm. So I started with that just to look at the health habits of them. And then I went into doing other research on body composition, where again, we found out that they sat for obviously longer periods of time than non-peers. And we found that they have significantly lower lean body mass. Um, but also I think the headlines, when I started researching, it kind of really struck me, you know, video game addict dies at 22 years old. And we read about this and I started looking up some articles and Dr. Beasley uh, came up with this phrase two decades ago called e-thrombosis. And this is before the start of esports, really. Um, and looking at computer use. And then Dr. Lippi did a study in 2017 that documented all the video game use and um, the deaths from DBTs. And although there's only 22 documented cases, that's really more cases than you would see in any young youth sport at that age, you know, aside from accidents with soccer and other things. So my goal was really to look at um, exercise. And when I realized that exercise is kind of a scary word for most people in the esport world, I started to focus on just movement and taking frequent breaks. Mm-hmm. This is interesting because I think that's something that we probably need to think about is, is movement rather than exercise, because here you're really touching on something that I think is important, which is the hemodynamics. Uh, now that's that's something people more than others might be concerned with. So w- what was it about the hemodynamics of movement and, and what are things that you think might be contributing factors to some additional risk here of, of lack of movement? You know, I started to try to paint the picture looking up other um, research articles outside of esports because there are no articles on this in esports. Um, and that's where, you know, Dr. Tosar comes in with his research, but um, there was also an article that was pretty popular that sitting is the new smoking. And Dr. Eklund did a study that was published in 2016 in Lancet. And basically they were saying that cumulative hours of sitting is actually more detrimental than, you know, if you just did interrupted um, sitting. So Um, And then what he wrote in there was that if you exercise 60 to 90 minutes a day, it can counteract the negative effects of prolonged sitting. And I thought to myself, there is no way that this population is exercising 60 to 90 minutes a day. This is not feasible. It's not reasonable. It's a young population. So how do we get through to this young population? Um, One is I'd have to find a way to improve their performance because that's all they simply care about. And we can't blame them for that. Um, And two is what is almost the minimal that I can get them to do to improve there and not have this vascular issue. Nobody should ever die from a deep vein thrombosis, especially as young as 12 years old. It just should never happen. It's completely avoidable. That's great. Uh, Dr. Tozer, maybe maybe you can jump in here because, you know, this is a small study with just a few participants, but it sparked some keen interest. And I think really touched on something is that, that where we have a knowledge gap, we need to, we need to, you know, gather interest here. And and certainly this is interesting to physiologists, but also clinicians. 
Um, what drew your attention most about this study and its potential implications from a pathophysiological or clinical risk management point of view? Yeah, so th this is uh, it's a very interesting study because it's very relevant to actually people who sit. So a lot of the literature on sitting and, and physiological effects have been done in the lab, but they have included just people who, you know, who are either inactive or active, but they don't necessarily have a sedentary job, if you will. Um, so these players um, with a history of, you know, more than 500 hours of gaming um, are predominantly sedentary. And so the to study the effects of prolonged sitting in these people who already have a burden of sedentary behavior was very relevant, uh, sort of moving the field to a population where you might want to do an intervention on. Um, uh, at the same time, these people are also, like Dr. Donahue said, uh, predominantly inactive. Uh, they also do a lot of practice, and we'll, we'll probably touch upon some sleep and circadian effects um, of overnight practice, let's say, with video gaming. Um, they also have high, likely high stress levels because of the because of the competition, the just high cortisol levels, etc. So I felt that um, you know this is a step um, towards sort of developing interventions to a population who is really at risk, um, and so this was the most interesting part of the study for me. That's great, and and I think it's it's important to maybe look at at how you conducted the study uh, here because you know Dr. Donahue, you were using Doppler ultrasound on something called the popliteal artery. Um, so for those of us who may not be familiar with this technique, can you explain it just really briefly to us what you were measuring? Uh, where, where do I find this artery? Uh, and, and in particular, blood flow versus blood flow velocity um, as an interaction was identified. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the popliteal artery is actually um, on the posterior part, the back of the knee. And it's a, it's a major vein that's used in most research studies because it's easy to find, but it's also one of the most prone for blood clots if, if one's to develop. We use this also because given the nature of how most people conduct research, they don't have the person typically sitting and gaming while they're using an ultrasound. An ultrasound um, machine, uh, it's just, it's a, it's almost like a long wand that looks like, uh, it's a, it's almost, I, I look at Doppler ultrasound as like a super sonic way of doing ultrasound. It shows you not only the visual, but it, the audio of, of what's going to happen with, with blood flow and blood volume. And obviously you need an expert that does it. We, we had a professional that, that conducted it for us. We had a little bit of difficulty with this because we couldn't, we could only do one side of the body because when you game, you use your right arm to use a mouse. So we had to do the delphosand while they were on the on the left side, but we um, we marked it and we we managed to do that. It's it's definitely the reason why the numbers are so little is it is a very time consuming study to conduct. <laughs> but blood flow versus blood volume, the easiest way, and I equate this to my high school students when I have to explain it to them like this is I think of a faucet, and if you turn the faucet on just a little bit you're going to get just a little bit amount of, of water flow. And then the velocity is how fast that's coming out. And that's how we look at your volume and then your velocity. So when you sit, you're actually stopping that blood flow and you're decreasing your blood flow and your blood velocity. One, because your muscles are, act as a pump when you're walking to, to pump blood. Um, and you're virtually turning that off when you sit, you're turning that pumping action off. But also when you're sitting, you're also almost pinching that blood flow back up into the body, which leaves you with more of a, you know, blood stasis than movement. Now, those who may have seen this on airplanes, um, people with big, heavy compression stockings, this is, this is something that you used as well. 
Um, but you, you select a couple interventions, the compression sleeves and, and a six minute walk. So can you explain why these might be effective at reducing risk and particularly why six minutes? Six minutes doesn't seem like a long time, um, but but I, I know something about six minute walks. So I'm, I'm hoping you can tell me why you selected that. Well, for me to go into the six minute walk, I'm just going to rewind two years ago to our other study. Um, this study was originally supposed to be conducted during the pandemic. And what we really truly wanted to look at was executive function changes and also vascular changes. This was supposed to be one study, but because of the pandemic, we obviously couldn't do anything in person. So we did the executive function study, and it really was based on something called the six-minute walk test, which is a validated test that we use in rehab, and also based on uh, Dr. Tosar's study that showed five minutes um, was an effective method. But because we had already conducted a study that showed a six-minute walk improved executive function in gamers, we stuck with the six-minute walk. So now we kind of created that narrative that not only can a six-minute walk improve your gaming and executive function, it could also improve your vascular health while, while you're gaming. Now, just to be clear, when we're talking executive function, we're talking about being good at gaming, right? Well, that's an interesting topic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or did I, I open mean, up a can of worms? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, so um, yes, executive, but we use validated tests, something called the Stroop test. And what that measures is your reaction time and decision-making. Now, does that carry over to how well you game? It should, because gaming is decision-making, and, and, but it has, has that test been validated for gamers? No. What, what we showed was that a six-minute walk actually increased their decision-making and, and their speed. Now, did that carry over to wins and losses? We did not measure that. Okay. We just showed executive function. Fair enough. So, so it's sort of an indirect uh, uh, suppositional position at this point, something that needs more study. Absolutely. But, but it was certainly interesting to see the difference between the walking and the compression stocking. So, so particularly in the figures where there were 90 minutes um, and you, you drew the comparison at the 90 minute point, how, how relevant is that to say, well, I can just put on socks or I can get up and, and, and move. So it seems like this is a pretty, pretty big, but also if I can't walk, is compression maybe a better substitute for doing um, nothing? That, that's an excellent question. And actually it was a concern. Are we now going to stop players from walking because they feel like they can just put compression wear on and say, well, look, I don't have to walk. I have compression wear. Um, Again, we kind of looked at that as a little bit of maybe this can be both. Maybe we can have it where these players in collegiate level have uniforms that do have some compression or they wear them and they have to take a break because the walking break was the only one that was significant. Yes, there was a clinical difference with the compression wear. And um, and that will bring me to a different question of clinical relevance because I do think there was clinical relevance to compression that we had. And again, we only use calf. There are so many variations of compression you can use. You can use socks, you can use full length compression wear. But really, as we looked at it as the gold standard is simply taking the walk. And I, I think this is interesting. So so Dr. Toser, you know, when we think of this perhaps from the perspective of an amateur athlete versus a professional athlete and what they might have a preference for use, we have to kind of integrate this, this health risk but we also have to consider, you know, how do we communicate this and translate this knowledge into an, in potential for enhanced gameplay? So we have to think about human factors of psychology and physiology coming together here. So 
you know, long term, what what are your thoughts on on sort of what the implications of this or or follow on studies need to be done? What might precondition players who are thinking about you know looking for that advantage over those who are not using these techniques? Uh, what should they be thinking of as gamers or or coaches of gamers? Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting question. So in the in this study, close to seventy percent people thought that walking break improved their performance. And so I think that is a very, you know, a very interesting sample. And and with a lot of people realize that this is not only benefiting my cardiovascular health, but also benefiting my cognitive health. Uh, so that is definitely, you know, a study to do with this population, especially was already, you know, gaming for a, for a number of hours. Um, and so I think uh, doing maybe with larger sample sizes for future work to just replicate these findings maybe doing it at different times of day, et cetera, would be interesting. So let's open this up a little bit because here here I'm thinking, you know, th- this is relevant in, in terms of professional or competitive gameplay or, or even amateur. I mean, everybody has to be cognizant of the fact that if we sit for long protracted periods of time working and playing, which is which is kind of the the trade-off here. Some people could be having an occupation that's that's putting them at high risk for sitting long periods of time. And then in order to unwind for the day, what do they do? They go home and they sit for a long period of time and play games to sort of wind that back. So so I I think with e-gamers, there's something that was mentioned already, which is this this inherent risk of sympathetic activity, or even potentially what I would consider almost intermittent shock, that particularly with or real-time gameplay on servers with other human competitors. You, you know, there's quite a bit of stress and sympathetic load. I'm wondering, you know, can can we discuss here a little bit, what do we think about things like heart rate variability or cortisol levels? I think Dr. Toaster, you mentioned cortisol. Should we even should we even be looking to get a cardiac test or, or some sort of uh, screening done for tournaments that could be really high intensity on 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 sympathetic load in addition adding some some risk to this and i was just kind of curious you know should we be looking at long-term impacts of long-term gamers might they have pathologies that are developing that aren't just dbt related but maybe even something like takotsobu over the long term i i do want to make one comment on what you just said about the sympathetic activity there is an article out there that says gaming is exercise because your heart rate goes up and your blood pressure goes up and that's extremely misleading because if you're not in the physiology or medical world, you understand that sympathetic activity is very different raising your heart rate and blood pressure than if you're exercising and your vessels are dilating and you're raising it because you need blood flow to increase. And I think you bring up an excellent point about should we be measuring cortisol levels or other stress hormones, um, which has been done slightly in this population, but not really to the extent it needs to be done. Yeah, I want to add that, you know, the compression stockings are going to sort of passively help filling up the heart. But the walking break is an active form, which is not only going to increase muscle, you know, skeletal muscle blood flow, but then also using an active pump to fill the heart up, which is going to eventually reduce the sympathetic activation, which you would need if your muscles were not working, just to essentially fill the heart, you know, passively fill the heart up. And so, I think it's sort of misstress, so not a good good amount of stress. You're right that I don't think that this gaming is the same as exercise, because exercise does a lot of other things than just raise your heart rate or blood pressure. Yeah, and, and so th- th- I guess this is the important thing is that when we talk about raising our heart rate, it's usually in terms of aerobic activity. 
Um, and that's different than raising your heart rate under stress or fear condition response. And I, I think people sometimes may underestimate how intense these tournaments can get and, and how hyperactive our systems can can be in, in play. And so that's where I'm, I'm wondering too, you know, can we coach these players better to be prepared? Will they perform better if they are trained in a way that accommodates or prepares their body for a long e-tournament over a weekend or something like that? What are, what are your thoughts there? Like what, what, what can we sort of take away from this? So clearly there's a human uh, factor. There's a psychology to this. Oh, you know? I, I think this translating this over to esports is going to be the most difficult on a professional level. I don't really uh, base my research off of professionals too much because one, it's such a small population uh, Two, they have their own trainers and they do have exercise regimens. It's the collegiate level that I really focus on predominantly um, and the younger generation who are at home who have no coaches and they're just home gaming. But on a collegiate level that it's growing so much, a lot of these schools are not putting the funding that they would put into regular collegiate sports. They don't have trainers. They have a coach. And when I say a coach, they have an esport coach. They don't have a fitness coach. And these coaches are desperate for information on how they can make their players more healthy, what they can do. They have no guidelines at that level at this point. Um, they're not NCAA regulated, which regulates all the collegiate sports in this country. Um, we do have a few organizations like NACE or the National Junior Collegiate Association, but they're there mostly guiding them from uh, just tournament regulation. There's absolutely no health guidelines. Whereas, for an example, the NCAA doesn't allow collegiate football to practice two contact sports back to back because we know that that can cause concussion injury, brain injury. There's absolutely no guidelines set up for collegiate esports. And I'm hoping this study, this one I was really excited about because I'm hoping these studies lead to more studies that will eventually lead to some regulation on this level. So, Dr. Toshley, what are your thoughts here? I, I mean, I'm imagining already that there's game makers and esports companies and sponsors and event organizers listening to this right now. And they are generating huge and growing revenue. So this, this is not going away. This is only getting bigger. In fact, the audience is is diversifying by age and there's no longer uh, a restriction on on who's playing. You know, we we have kids playing with older adults. We have, you know, multiple uh, variations of, of, of athleticism. What do we do? What advice do we do we start giving people if we wanted to make a guideline, for example? How do we encourage uh, more studies and, and precautions? Uh, even audience members who are watching or, or you know, sitting and watching these games unfold, they don't move because they're they're enthralled by what's in front of them. So they're not even playing, but they're invested, right? And maybe that's a that's something for all audiences of sport, regardless, we're gonna be cognizant of. Yeah, no, uh, you're right. I, I was reading somewhere that the audience number for esports is about over 500 million people um, worldwide. That's a lot of people. Um, I think for players, from a player's perspective, you know where we have these questionnaires that we fill out before we do like an exercise stress test just to make sure, you know, or in a lab, some some kind of questionnaire, you know, testing that they're in they're healthy people, that they can actually perform the sport without the risk of having an adverse event or something like that. Maybe Maybe some kind of basic fitness testing every two years or something like that if this is a professional person. Um, and I think the uh, Dr. Daniel's study is so important because I know that there was a study in 21 where they compared people who are really fit with a high VO2 max versus low VO2 max. 
and they uh, put them through this setting regimen and they showed that just having high fitness does not uh, prevent the impairment in endothelial dysfunction or impairment in endothelial function upon sitting. So I think just having high fitness is not going to work. There needs to be sort of a this breaking sitting time and use of compression garments that this study showed should be sort of, I mean, we don't have any other guidelines. So, you know, might as well put this in the guideline. It's not going to harm, definitely. Uh, right. And so, I mean, this is fascinating because, I mean, now you're you're sort of hinting on the fact that we have to be adapted to the gameplay itself. So we can't just be fit and then and then suddenly go 12 hours of gameplay and think we're going to be okay because we were fit when we started. Is is that is that sort of what I'm am I hearing that? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because because I think the I mean just physiologically, if you have high fitness levels, then you you're probably not going to increase your heart rate that much with game playing. But that's about it, really. Your bend in the popliteal artery is still going to be the same when you sit. Your blood flow is still going to be less when you sit in the legs. So that's not going to change really fundamentally. And so I I think that breaking sitting time is just it's just important or there are there are other studies which have not been done in esports players but just normal people where people have shown fidgeting is helpful um, calisthenics in the middle is helpful etc but but in the absence of any guidelines i would say that breaking you know taking a walk especially when it's going to improve your performance is a great strategy yeah and it doesn't sound like 6 minutes is too much to ask i mean this is 6 minutes is getting up to you know, walk up and down the stairs to get a drink or or just taking a walk around the house. You know, it's a six minute walk test really isn't a lot, but it had a physiological benefit here. Um, but you, you know, I wanna I wanna caution like this was still a small trial. One of the participants was female. We we have some sitting interaction that fitness may not be an antidote to this entirely. Um, what about things like contraceptive use, which are normally associated and, and generally communicated to uh individuals that this is a risk for dvt um you, you know in youth and young adults they they are generally healthy but they do carry these risks and they're not immune to 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 risk so how do we use this as a impetus to expand and broaden the net of study and um are there other medications we should start thinking about and, and here i'm also thinking are, are we encouraging perhaps some risk with performance enhancement drugs should i be taking a beta blocker or something like that to, to sort of augment my playability and and, and ability to um, manage long term and and is that is that a concern um i think every point you brought up is a concern and one of the issues that i take with collegiate again collegiate level is that the, if you're an ncaa athlete you're mandated to have a physical by a physician and you'll get recommended to physical therapy occupational therapy wherever you have an injury these players are not mandated to do that and I think, again, one simple step to add to the guidelines that we're kind of creating as we talk here um, is, hey, you want to play collegiate esports, you have to have a physical, you have to, you know, and again, then then you can start having that discussion about with, with you know, women who game and, um, and taking any kind of supplementation or anything like that. So, so certainly at the collegiate level where this is organized, you know, this is, this is sanctioned activity. Game makers, esports companies, they're 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 going to want to think about things like chairs, design, um, you know, heated chairs, electrical stimulation, compression, or even how they design the tournament itself, right? To go intensely for a certain amount of time, but then break and get that six minute walk in. 
so so schedules can be adapted as well to fit this. Is that is is that fair? Maybe these are the guidelines that are coming out as, as we, t we we talk about this. Well, it's game dependent, to be honest with you. Um, so if you're playing a game like Overwatch, which is a first person shooter game, those games can be fairly quick. They can be over in 18, 20 minutes. Then you have a game like League of Legends, and that can go over an hour. There is no there is no set break time, which is why whenever I do my research, I give it a window. I say 60 minutes, but I give it a 10 minute window. And it's funny because, you know, when I try to explain to gamers how, hey, you know, in soccer, there's mandated 30 minutes because you have to take that break at an, or in basketball when you could call a timeout and put a break in the action. Mm -hmm. That's a tactical that's a tactical thing to use also to throw the other team off. And esport players and, and organizations, they don't like that. They don't want to break up the continuity of play. They want to keep it going. Um, but maybe we do have to start implementing where it's like, hey, I know we're in the heat of it, but boom, it's it's halftime. You know, pause right. everything and we all take that break. Yeah, because I mean, certainly there could be eventually a liability issue here with insurance and, and, and other things where you're, you know, ignorance is is fine if you're if you don't know there's a problem. Once you know there's a problem and you don't do anything about it, that's a conscientious decision um, that, that risks harm. Um, so certainly th th there sounds to me also that there's some game styles that could possibly mitigate this risk. Uh, you know, for game developers, is is this an advantage? Should we be making more VR style, more bodily up and movement based games that, that are integrate sort of haptic systems that would prevent this? In a perfect world, of course, we would want that. You know, I, I guess some people tell you that VR is the future with this, but to me, that's just essentially creating a different game. It's like saying, hey, you know, football is really not healthy because of all the head injuries. So let's create something without any kind of tackling. We'll call it touch football instead. You know, it's almost creating a different game. These games aren't going anywhere. These games are here to play and they don't have to be as unhealthy as we, as they are being played right now. They're just simply, it's just in such its infant stages um, that I think we can make it so that these players can game and do what they like, but need to be monitored maybe to keep it a little bit more um, healthy because we don't know what the long-term effects will be. I think this is also important because those long-term effects and and even from a clinical perspective, asking the question as a history, how often do you game or do you use social media? I mean, these are things that are having distinct cognitive, psychological and physiological impacts. Now, now sleep and circadian rhythms with, with the light that's used in these games also can um, influence us. Dr. Tozer, you mentioned circadian rhythm at one point earlier. Um, so how, how do you sort of see sort of what, what we do with seasonality or with day and night exposures on, on top of this? Because I, I think this is relevant to the physiology of the body too. Yeah, so that, that's a very pertinent point because these are, you know, the gamers are in the competition, presumably during daytime, but they probably have a body of work that they put in before the tournament and, you know, practice during the night, et cetera. Um, you know, so light exposure during the night or when you should actually be asleep can actually reduce your melatonin levels and actually can you shift your circadian clock. It's almost like doing shift work. And we know shift work is unhealthy. And so people who are practicing for long hours going into the middle of the night are definitely exposed to just that risk per se, but also the sleep deprivation or the sleep irregularity. So, you know, um, I'm assuming that these players had normal sleep, but then you add on, you know, if you have a night of sleep deprivation or night of gaming, and then you have a tournament in the during the daytime, uh, you may actually have even more cardiovascular effects of playing a game under these circumstances. 
Um, so I think that's, you know, maybe maybe having like a hard stop to practice at a certain time. But there's also going to be some circadian rhythm effects of when people exercise, um, depending on when they're exercising, your uh, sympathetic activity response to exercise can be different. Um, and so potentially studying these gamers um, in different, you know, in a in sort of a circadian protocol or something like that would be very interesting because then you could potentially identify when you should not be doing this or when you should be doing this, where, you know, you give the same amount of stress and if you see a low um, detrimental response, then maybe you've identified a time where it's okay to practice or where it's okay to, you know, have this tournament at this time instead of the other time. So, yeah, it's very pertinent and I think very interesting area for the next 10 years. Yeah, certainly people want to train to to perform better if they're professionals or not. I think everybody's competitive when they're playing these games. They want to they want to win, right? You know, if we understand the physiology of of what can augment our performance in, in these scenarios, I think we're going to want to take advantage of that. Uh, practice, of course, makes perfect, but but you know, practicing in the right way has shown the difference between Olympians in the 1950s and Olympians today, right? The, the training protocol, humans didn't really evolve different in the last 50 years, training evolved. And so, you know, as a nascent sport, I think, I think this is the realization too, is that physiology can be used and leveraged. So that's, that's fascinating. Uh, where, where do we go from here though? You know, we, we've talked about the college, we've talked about the professional, we've talked about the amateurs, but you know, are we looking to get more warnings? Do we need the CDC involved? Do we get the Surgeon General to put a warning on video games? I, I, I don't want to speak facetiously, but it, it, it's sort of who's responsible for for this? It can't all be on the individual, can it? I think you're dealing with too much of a young population to put it on an individual, and it would be excellent to have the Surgeon General and the CDC involved, but. Again, um, what 16-year-old is going to listen to that if it's on a label? I actually put it right to the game manufacturers. These are things that they can be incorporating into the games. You know, find ways that these games turn off at a certain time if you realize somebody's been playing for a certain amount of time. Saying, you know, um, I put it to them and I honestly put, turn to them also for funding these kind of studies and putting it into health because esports is not, at this point, probably going to be funded by an NIH. Um, maybe video game play might because it reaches a broader audience. But I do really turn to these these manufacturer, the gaming companies and manufacturers to step up and offer some research money um, and also to in, find ways to incorporate this. Yes, everybody wants to play safe and, and I think keep playing. Right. So the risk of a DVT will put you out of the game permanently. So, you know, we don't want that. Um, and, and I think we want to keep having fun with the games that we play. So that's good to, to think about how how game designers um, incorporate, you know, maybe an active component or, or do some monitoring, particularly in in real time play, you know, where there's servers and there's no pause button necessarily on the round. Um, so that's that's fascinating. Uh, you know, takeaways from our discussion, though, are, are interesting because it, it seems like we 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 get a lot more benefit from physically up and moving, getting getting that that natural muscle movement as as opposed to just passive compression. So there's there's no cheat code here. We're gonna actually have to up and move. But what I'm encouraged by was six minutes seems to be um, more than enough to sort of reduce our risk. It may not be enough necessarily to enhance our performance, but it could. Is that is that a fair takeaway? 
Um, absolutely. I mean, that we've, we've shown two studies now with that, that, you know, it is enough to actually improve executive function on them. Um, it would be interesting now to take the next step and maybe people can look at, um, someone can research eye tracking. Um, that's an area that has not been, I know a lot of people trying to look at that, that really has not been looked at. Um, and then outcomes in specific games. It's very hard to do outcome measures because there's such a variety of games out there. Um, but there are things like aim trainers that you can use. Uh, we did that for one of our studies where we used an aim trainer that looks at your accuracy and speed and you can keep that um, standardized. So so this this is something in clinical medicine, gamification has has translated over. We, we've talked about, you know, when we want to encourage rehabilitation or or encourage patients to be highly motivated, we gamify their interactions. So maybe there's a way to also gamify the game here to get that physical, to show players, hey, do a six minute walk test, come back and do this um, uh, scoring on how quickly you can shoot and shoot accurately. And you'll see your performance enhancement from that six minute benefit. Is, is, is that sort of kind of what you're alluding to here, Dr. Donahue? Yeah, yeah. Um, as I, you know, this study was, the study that we did was very low intensity, very light. Um, I would like to see possibly, you know, and again, we only saw the benefits of this for about 30 minutes post that walk. I'd like to start to see a little bit more of an increase in exercise intensity, maybe for those minutes. You know, I think we'd see a lot more benefit. We really started with the bare bones minimum of, hey, get up and go to walk to the bathroom and stay up for a little bit. But it would be really interesting to see, hey, you know, maybe you do some jumping, you do things that are a little more high intensity and see where we go from there. That's interesting. Uh, Dr. Joseph, you, you, you must be inspired by some of this work and some of your past work. Uh, there, what, are, what are some of these other questions that you're, you're leaning in towards? Yeah, I think the intensity one is really interesting to, to have a dose response. Like what is, what is exactly, plus if you actually do, like Dr. Donahue said, moderate to heavy, you know, high intensity exercise, you do it six times, five minutes, you've got your 30 minutes just there. And so you might also meet the physical activity guidelines. I know you need 10 minutes at a stretch, but but I think doing that and then looking at the adverse effects of gaming on sleep or the adverse effects of just not the competition per se, but the practice on, on sleep. Because we know that, you know, iPad use, et cetera, is going to affect your sleep. But but this is a different level of um, stimulation. Um, and so I think this is a unique population. So it'd be very interesting to study, you know, what happens what happens to your sleep. And then if you have bad sleep, then what happens to your performance? It's sort of a loop, unfortunately. It would be very interesting to test. Yeah, it's fascinating. Dr. Donahue, what's what's next for you after this? Uh, <laughs> can you give us a hint on what's coming up uh, without giving uh, anything away? But... No, no, no. We actually just completed a study that I'm actually excited to get out there. Um, this one was more musculoskeletal. We looked at body composition and we really found um, a correlation between musculoskeletal pain and low muscle mass in, you know, prolonged sitting with, with this population. And that I'm excited was also equal amount of women and men. I just hope from this discussion, I spark other people's interest to keep researching this and getting, you know, the more articles we can get out there on this, then maybe we can make a change. Yeah, in, absolutely. In some of the regulation that goes out there. And on a side note, we talk about gamers through this. I have been, I haven't, uh, I've been reached out to by uh, military personnel, because this does carry over. If you think about what a lot of our military personnel do, they sit in front of computers all day, drone operators, they sit in front of computers all day. So, Absolutely. you know, um, and again, that's also a very stressful 
job as well with sympathetic activity. So there's so much carryover for people who want to research this population. And there's like a vast amount of opportunities for people to take advantage of with us. Maybe an opportunity for collaboration between game makers and DARPA military to, to yeah, as, as we create more and more distance between, you know, war fighters and the war, they, they have to fly longer distances in virtual space. And yeah. of course, that leads back to what Dr. Toaster was saying about circadian and sleep. If, if, if people are not sleeping, then, you know, these are, these are really, you know, a lot of expectations, a lot of high performance expectations on people um, in an occupational sense. So certainly some, some interesting questions being raised. Maybe I'll just ask last, what games are either of you playing and what, what capacity are you playing video games these days or, or anybody in your family into it that you're passionate about? Well, I have a teenage son, um, <laughs> but uh, they play PUBG, actually, which is not on the, they use a handheld for that. I, uh, I make fun of myself. I am not a gamer. I think Pac-Man was probably the best game I ever played. <laughs> and I'm dating myself with that. <laughs> I have dabbled. They've, oh, the teams have tried to teach me how to play League of Legends. I'm just terrible at it. And it's, I, I'd okay. much rather observe. And I actually love to observe the playing because it really does bring people together, especially on a college campus. <laughs> there you go. Dr. Toaster, how about you? Any yeah, I have an almost, um, almost teenager son. And so he plays Nintendo, though. So that's a recent addition to our to our family, <laughs> uh, but but they you know he has to stand and do it, and so that's that's sort of important. Um, yeah, I'm not that much into video games. I, I played Mario when I was a kid, and we have Mario now, but I I don't know. I've some have some have not been um, interested, and in, and perhaps it has to do more with you know when I have more time on my hands, maybe I will be. Uh, but yeah. We, yeah, it's certainly interesting, and uh, especially with young parents. Well, parents of young kids it's so important to sort of think about these things yeah, yeah I, I think that's that's an important part is that is that everybody has different roles and responsibilities to, to, to monitor and and to encourage and and to educate um you know as, as somebody who's more of a fan of uh, Baldur's Gate and Skyrim myself <laughs> I, like, I like the low-key <laughs> stuff <laughs> but um, really, really, you know, you can lose hours at this and, and sometimes you don't even realize how long you've been playing until somebody uh, makes you consciously aware of it because it, they are so enthralling. So I guess maybe for those who are who are listening, if you are a younger person who's listening to this and you're thinking, hey, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? Just remember, if you make passion a part of your work, you're always going to find joy. And if you're a gamer, maybe that includes physiology and cardiovascular training. Um, so I want to thank you, Dr. Donahue and Dr. Toser. Let's all go decompress a little bit online if you have the time. And of course, uh, make sure you bring your compression stockings or your stopwatch to get you up and moving for that six minutes. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.